The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Case by Case, Maximizing Personalized Approaches to Prostate Cancer. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash YGE 860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for being here to talk through case by case, maximizing personalized approaches to prostate cancer. Uh, Dr. McKay and I are very, very happy to have you here in person if you're able to join us at the SUO or virtually if you are not here with us. Uh, today's panelists are me, Alicia Morgans, uh, as you can see here, and Dr. Raina McKay. And today's agenda is going to include an initial session uh, that Raina will be leading, talking about mo uh, making modern personalized treatment choices in metastatic hormone-sensitive prostate cancer, really reviewing where we are, where we've been, and the latest data in that particular realm. Then I will talk about navigating an array of novel treatment options for metastatic castration-resistant prostate cancer and how we leverage new and emerging treatments to maximize outcomes both today and hopefully in the near future. And then we will have a, a review of what's coming next on the horizon, what we're really excited about in terms of novel approaches and the importance of clinical trials, as well as a discussion. And I will pass it over to Raina. Thank you so much for that kind introduction, Dr. Morgan. So it's really great to be here with you all at the SUO going through um, personalized treatment choices for patients with metastatic hormone-sensitive prostate cancer. So we're going to start out with a case that we're going to come back to at the end of this initial discussion. Um, this is a 67-year-old gentleman with a history of metastatic hormone-sensitive prostate cancer. He's a retired college professor, married, and father of three grown children. And his medical history um, goes through that he was diagnosed with prostate cancer, had it with a PSA of 65.4 on initial screening, um, had a biopsy done showing Gleason 4 plus 5 disease with an introductal component, um, staging, had imaging done, uh, CT, chest, abdomen, pelvis, and bone scan was completed, unfortunately demonstrating that he had de novo high disease burden, high volume of disease with multiple osseous metastases throughout his skeleton, also had some enlarged nodes throughout his um, peritoneum um, and also uh, in his pelvis and had some uh, lung nodules as well. Um, symptoms, he did have some lower back pain that was related to some osseous metastases, had extensive imaging that was done in that location of the lower back pain, was found to have on MRI epidural extension. Um, his past medical history really, really only significant for hypertension and hyperlipidemia. So kind of keep this case in mind as we go through the discussion today. So what I want to spend a little bit of time on this slide here, highlighting um, sort of uh, the evolution of evidence for treatment escalation in the metastatic hormone-sensitive prostate cancer setting. And what we'll start out with is the stampede data, what's highlighted at the top, is really what is the role for radiation in the context of people with advanced disease. Um, from Stampede H, we learned that really there was a benefit to primary directed radiation therapy, particularly for those patients that have low volume disease. Um, additionally, a series of studies, GTEC15 um, uh, charted, Stampede Arm C, really set the new standard for uh, therapy escalation in the metastatic hormone sensitive setting with the demonstration that docetaxel plus ADT improved the standard of care, um, improved overall survival over the standard of care with a particular benefit as demonstrated by charted for those high volume disease uh, patients though um, the benefit was seen um, across the board with regards to Stampede. 
Um, at the same time, or just after the docetaxel data was reported, um, a series of studies that had been investigating the role of hormonal therapy escalation in the metastatic hormone-sensitive setting were reported. Um, Latitude and Stampede G looked at the role of abiraterone plus ADT. Arches Enzymet looked at the role of enzalutamide, and Titan also looked at the role of apalutamide. All of these trials were positive trials with a demonstrated improvement of, in overall survival with therapy escalation independent of uh, risk group. And more recently, um, we're now seeing data for triple therapy, um, you know, uh, with the evolution of the standard of care being no longer ADT alone in 2015, the new standard of care really at that point in time was ADT plus docetaxel. So Aerosense and Peace One really reflect that new standard um, when, the when these trials were conducted. So the control arm of these trials reflects ADT plus docetaxel, and Aerosense tested um, the addition of darolutamide to that standard of care backbone, and, and uh, Peace One demonstrated uh, the benefit of abiraterone to that backbone as well. So we're going to go through this data in a little bit more detail. So um, here is the top line overall survival curves for all the AR targeting agents. Titan looked at apalutamide, demonstrating a statistically significant difference in overall survival over ADT alone with a median of 52.2 months. Arches um, looked at enzalutamide um, compared to placebo ADT. Enzymet looked at enzalutamide compared to control, and here there's an active control with an NSAA that was utilized. But all these trials demonstrated improvement in overall survival with therapy escalation with an AR targeting agent. Now what's interesting is while we have multiple large phase three trials with thousands of patients that were enrolled demonstrating improvements in the gold standard, which is overall survival, there has been poor adoption with therapy escalation in the metastatic hormone sensitive setting. Here in the box, you see highlighted three separate studies um, that all looked at um, what is the uptake of uh, hormone therapy escalation or, or treatment escalation in the metastatic hormone sensitive setting. And we see that the data are really poor. The, the bottom bullet there really reflects a a large study that was done with 621 patients across uh, over 60 oncologists and 40 urologists looking at uh, therapy escalation, and 52% of patients were receiving ADT alone. Um, so the majority of patients um, not receiving sort of um, uh, therapy intensification in the hormone-sensitive setting. And I think this is really critically important as we delve in the, into the data around now triple therapy, because we've now demonstrated um, through PEACE-1 and through Aerosense that actually triple therapy improves outcomes for patients over the standard of care of ADT docetaxel. Um, we haven't done the studies looking at, you know, what is the contribution of docetaxel the com with the control arm of ADT versus an NHT, but these studies do stand um, alone. So we're going to go through the results of PEACE-1. This study looked at um, abiraterone plus uh, prednisone in de novo metastatic hormone-sensitive disease. Patients had to have evidence of distant metastases with disease outside of the pelvis to be eligible for the study that was identified on conventional imaging. Patients were permitted to enroll with an ADT lead-in. Um, stratification factors um, included performance status, site of, sites of METs, um, and uh, uh, castration type, whether they had an orchiectomy or were just receiving medical castration, and whether um, they received docetaxel or not. When this study was initially conducted, the standard of care was just ADT. The docetaxel uh, you know, became the new standard of care in the midst of the conduct of the study, and so therefore the standard of care actually changed in the middle of the uh, conduct of the trial. And um, after the, re the reported data from Charted, 
um, and Stampede, that standard of care actually included docetaxel. The primary endpoint here was RPFS and OS. And this was a positive trial. Here we see uh, the PIECE1 data for improved RPFS with abiraterone, and this is in the ADT plus docetaxel with or without radiation cohort. We see a statistically significant improvement in overall survival with standard of care plus abiraterone versus standard of care alone. Um, and this was, again, for the RPFS uh, data, the hazard ratio here is as 0.50. And here is the data for overall survival. Um, on the left-hand side, you're going to see the curve for the entire patient population that was enrolled, including those patients that were, were enrolled with the ADT alone control arm or the ADT plus dosi control arm. In the entire patient population of the trial, we do see a statistically significant improvement in overall survival with the addition of abiraterone um, to standard of care. And if we take that population of patients that had uh, received ADT docetaxel, again, we see a statistically significant improvement with abiraterone being added to the backbone of ADT plus docetaxel. Here, the median is not yet reached um, in the triple therapy arm versus 4.4 years, the hazard ratio of 0.75. So this is a positive trial. Um, the benefit seemed to be largely seen in those patients that had high volume disease. You can see that in the banner at the bottom um, where the median OS was 5.1 years compared to 3.5 years. So we are improving survival on the order of years for people um, that get triple therapy escalation. Um, the benefit, uh, while the hazard ratio is pointing in the right direction for the low volume patients, um, a lot um, less uh, of those patients on the trial um, but that did not reach statistical significance. Now here is the data for the Aerosense trial. Um, the Aerosense trial was conducted, you know, after the approval of docetaxel. So here the control arm is ADT plus docetaxel. Um, the trial enrolled patients with newly diagnosed uh, metastatic disease with an ECOG performance status of zero to one. Patients were randomized one to one to receive triple therapy with ADT docetaxel for six cycles plus sterilutamide versus ADT plus docetaxel alone. The primary endpoint was overall survival and a series of secondary endpoints were looked at, including time to MCRPC, time to initiation of subsequent therapy, time to SSC-free survival, and time to first SSC and time to pain progression. So all clinically meaningful endpoints that were looked at as secondary endpoints in the context of this trial. And this also was a positive trial demonstrating a statistically significant improvement in overall survival with the addition of darolutamide to the standard of care backbone of ADT plus docetaxel. The median here is not reached in the uh, darolutamide arm and is 46.9 um, uh, months in the uh, uh, placebo arm. Hazard ratio here is um, 0.68. Um, I'm sorry, that was 48.9. So it's definitely a, a, a positive study. And this is the secondary endpoints with time to castration-resistant prostate cancer. So that was defined based off of both PSA progression or radiographic progression. It was a composite endpoint, um, but showing a statistically significant improvement in time to CRPC with their alutamide added to uh, ADT uh, plus docetaxel. Additionally, we're seeing improvements in time to pain progression with the addition of uh, darolutamide as well. So positive with regards to key secondary endpoints as well. I want to highlight the Enzymet trial, and the Enzymet trial was not designed to answer the question of what is the role of triple therapy. However, the trial did allow for patients to enroll if they were receiving ADT plus docetaxel. And so we do have patients that were on this trial 
who had received concurrent docetaxel. So we're highlighting this data out of completeness um, just to kind of highlight all the data that we have thus far where we have patients prospectively receiving um, docetaxel in the metastatic hormone-sensitive setting. So this trial enrolled patients um, with uh, metastatic hormone-sensitive prostate cancer with both high or low volume disease, that was one of the strat factors, um, and whether patients received docetaxel, that was another stratification factor. There obviously is bias because there's physician choice in the administration of docetaxel in the context of the study, um, but uh, that you know um, uh, was a stratification factor for the trial. Patients received ADT plus enzalutamide versus ADT plus um, an NSAA, like bicalutamide. Um, the primary endpoint of the trial was overall survival. Um, and here is the data for the study. It was a positive trial, demonstrating a statistically significant improvement in overall survival over um, the control arm. What's key to highlight is that 45% of patients, 45% um, uh, uh, um, were planned for concurrent docetaxel and received up to six cycles. The median number of cycles of docetaxel received was six. And um, you know, uh, patients could have started the they could have started the docetaxel before enrollment, or they could have received the docetaxel after enrollment on the trial. 108 patients received one cycle before enrollment. 62 patients received two cycles, and the remainder received all of the docetaxel after enrollment. Here is the data for overall survival in these various subgroups. Um, I think the key take-home message here is that across these subgroups, we do see the hazard ratio favoring addition of enzalutamide compared to ADT alone across all of these groups. This trial, again, was not designed to ask the question of what is the contribution of docetaxel, but rather what is the contribution of enzalutamide, and de definitely demonstrated that therapy escalation with enzalutamide improved outcomes across the board. I think it's important to think about quality of life. You know, we're talking about uh, you know overall survival for these patients on the order of years. These patients are staying on therapy for a long time. Um, so quality of life really does matter. Um, quality of life was maintained over time in the Aresense study. And despite longer treatment exposure um, with darolutamide versus placebo, the overall incidence of adverse events was pretty similar between the two arms, especially when it comes to falls, fractures, fatigue, and mental impairment that we think about for the AR um, antagonist. In the Enzimet study, enzalutamide was associated with worse uh, self-reported uh, ratings of fatigue, physical function, and cognitive function, but if you look at the overall health and overall quality of life, that was actually maintained, and um, enzalutamide was actually associated with a net benefit with regards to time to, de to deterioration of um, uh, symptoms at three years. So other things as we think, we know we just went through the data for triple therapy, we highlighted the data for doublet therapy. As we think about triple therapy and doublet therapy, I think things to factor in is with doublets, you know, obviously we're factoring in, um, you know, for patients on abiraterone, the monitoring that comes with that, hypertension, edema, LFTs, hypokalemia, ensuring that there's adequate monitoring. Abiraterone is given with concurrent prednisone, so ensuring that your patient is actually adequate to receive that. Pill burden. Um, obviously exacerbation of the ADT-associated side effects that can happen with um, NHT escalation, and then the other side effects of just um, uh, hormone therapy itself, the CV, the cardiovascular side effects, cognitive side effects, bone health side effects. I think when it comes to triple therapy, it's basically everything in that doublet therapy column, plus we're adding, you know, what is uh, uh, the infusional treatment, chemotherapy-related toxicity, whether it be neutropenia, uh, 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 you know, neuropathy, fatigue, cost, time on part of the patient coming into the clinic to receive IV treatment.
So I think this is a nice decision algorithm to think about when you have somebody that's presenting with either de novo metastatic hormone-sensitive prostate cancer or has had a history of localized disease recurred and has now developed uh, metastatic hormone-sensitive disease. I think the first decision point is asking the question, is are, are, they high lo- are they high volume or are they low volume? And I think that can really help guide you know, how we treat this, these patients. I think for the high volume place, patients, what's on the table is um, ADT um, plus an ARSI or um, chemo-hormonal therapy with ADT um, and an ARSI. So basically triple therapy or doublet therapy if they're high volume. Um, You can see under the yes column there, there is no option for chemo ADT alone because I think we have moved away from that practice that is no longer standard of care. We have now two large phase three trials demonstrating improvements in overall survival with triple therapy compared to the backbone of ADT dosi. you know, I think in no scenario are we giving ADT dosi in the clinic, and you know, um, I, I guess you can carve out you you can always carve out a unique scenario, but that, that for routine practice, that's that's not really um, the standard of care. Um, if they don't have high volume disease, um, then the the go to standard is ADT with an ARSI. As you can see, ADT alone is not in that bucket because again, we have evolved away from the practice of ADT alone for patients that have metastatic hormone-sensitive disease. For those patients that are low volume, um, particularly those, um, you know, the, the next question to ask is, you know, uh, do they have their primary intact or not? Are they de, de novo or not? Um, if they're de novo, you can't consider the role of radiation therapy to the primary for metastatic hormone-sensitive disease in addition to ADT plus an ARSI. So I think these are the things to think about um, kind of a decision algorithm for navigating metastatic hormone-sensitive prostate cancer management. So we're going to go back to our case now. So just to remind everyone, this is a gentleman that had de novo metastatic hormone-sensitive prostate cancer, high PSA, high Gleason score, introductal component, multiple bone metastases, lymph node metastases, also has visceral metastases with lung involvement, He's symptomatic and has pain. Um, Imaging demonstrates epidural extension. And so, you know, here's sort of where we're thinking about what do we give this individual um, in the clinic? How best do we treat him? Um, Alicia, I'd love to sort of get your initial impressions before I dive in and give my thoughts. (sighs) Sure. Um, Well, I think in in my clinic, at least, uh, for a patient who's chemo fit, and we do have a question about what is chemo fit, so you'll have to address that. this would be a patient that I would give triplet therapy to. So ADT docetaxel times six with concurrent either abiraterone or um, darolutamide, um, because that's really where the strongest data is. Uh, I think that, you know, especially because this patient is fit, I have no reason not to give him docetaxel, at least by the, the stem here. Um, I, I think that that's the best yeah. way to attack this disease. Yeah, I I agree. I mean, I think when patients present with symptomatic painful disease and they have high volume disease, that's my tip off that they need chemo. Like chemo and pain go hand in hand, actually. Um, And they tend to do better. I think, um, you know, uh, so that that's sort of kind of my my go to a young, healthy gentleman um, like this individual. We have the question about, you know, what defines unfit for chemotherapy. And I think um, there's a lot of factors to think about there. So one is performance status is a huge one. Is what to what contribution is the patient doing their activities of daily living? And you know, when I think about performance status, I think about what are the disease-related things that are impacting that patient's performance, and what are just 
other non-cancer related things. Um, so is the patient having trouble walking because of their severe back pain from their cancer? Or are they having trouble walking because they're frail, they're older, they have other things going on that's not a cancer specific thing? With docetaxel, I think about um, what's the status of their heart? Um, do they have any evidence of heart failure? There's a side effect of fluid retention with docetaxel. And so if somebody may have some cardiovascular issues, and not to say cardiovascular issues like you know, they had a history of a stent a couple years ago. I don't think that qualifies, but if they have a history of HEFPEF or, or volume overload, that makes me kind of a little bit concerned. And if they have underlying peripheral neuropathy, maybe they've got diabetes and they've already had, you know, bad peripheral neuropathy, you really don't want to exacerbate that. So those are the big things that I think about, you know, determining fitness for chemotherapy. Great. Well, um, just before we, before we move on, there's another really, I think, um, excellent question that I wanted to hear your thoughts on, because your section really is addressing, you know, all of these issues that um, we're trying to get the right patient, the right treatment, and that, that involves collaboration between medical oncologists, urologists, we're at SUO, so we're all collaborating here, but how do you make that happen for this patient in practice? So honestly, it's, we, so at our institution, we have actually a multi-D high-risk prostate cancer clinic. We see a lot of these patients in our multi-D clinic with urology, with radiation oncology. This guy has an intact uh, prostate. We didn't talk about what his urinary symptoms. Is he obstructed? Does he need a TERP? Um, does he have a Foley catheter in place? Um, so I think these are all things to think about that we kind of navigate with our uh, surgical colleagues and also radiation oncology as we see these individuals. You know, this gentleman has introductal, has an introductal component. He's metastatic already from the floodgates. I'm already thinking he needs germline testing. He probably needs somatic profiling because I'm worried that this is a gentleman that's probably going to evolve into metastatic CRPC at some point in time in his trajectory. So I'd rather make sure that we, um, you know, uh, get that data up front. Those biopsies that happen, they happen with our urology colleagues. That initial diagnosis happens in the urology clinic a lot, for, a lot of times for these individuals. Great. All right. So we'll keep moving along. So kind of take home points. ADT intensification for patients with metastatic hormone-sensitive prostate cancer is the current um, standard. Um, For de novo high-volume disease, uh, those patients that are uh, fit for docetaxel ADT um, uh, plus an NHT, that is the standard. uh, For those that are unfit for docetaxel ADT plus an ARSI, de novo low-volume, got a little option there with um, ADT plus an ARSI plus or minus uh, radiation to the uh, primary. There are studies that are looking at the role of surgery in this context as well. I know Brian Chapin is running a study through SWOG, and so definitely want to encourage uh, support for those trials. Um, And triple therapy can be discussed on a case-by-case basis. We will move on to navigating an array of novel treatment options for metastatic castration-resistant prostate cancer. I think these are going to be increasingly complicated decisions because especially as we're using our AR-targeting agents in the metastatic hormone-sensitive setting and docetaxel for some patients, especially these de novo high-volume patients, we're going to have to really think through changing mechanism of action so we can be maximally effective in the metastatic CRPC setting. Uh, We don't have commentary in this particular um, talk about sequence AR-targeted agents, but I know that you're all um, familiar with the idea that changing from abiraterone or enzalutamide to the alternate agent is actually pretty insufficient for most of our patients, with at most uh, maybe a pause in the PSA rise, Um, but in most cases, patients are progressing by 
radiographic progression within the first few months. So we really need to make sure we get to the right treatment for these patients. And as I said, it's becoming increasingly complicated. So as we focus for our, this section, we'll talk about a different patient. This is a 63-year-old gentleman with metastatic CRPC. He has a great performance status of zero. His PSA was 20.5 at diagnosis, and imaging included a bone scan with a lesion at L2 and a CT scan of the chest, abdomen, pelvis that demonstrated that lesion without visceral or lymph node involvement. So he really had low-volume metastatic hormone-sensitive disease at initial diagnosis. He was started on treatment with abiraterone and prednisone, and his PSA natured at 0.26, and gradually started to rise over the next year or plus on treatment. When his PSA was 2.7, staging scans demonstrated uh, bone and pelvic lymph node progression, and he appropriately underwent germline testing. This actually should happen for all of our metastatic hormone-sensitive patients as well, so really any metastatic patient should be getting germline testing. In his case, he was identified as having a BRCA2 alteration, which is the most common DNA repair defect alteration we'll see in uh, prostate cancer. His somatic testing confirmed that mutation as well, and it was negative for additional alterations, and we'll come back to this particular case. So one of the newest therapies on the block is lutetium PSMA 617. This is a radioligand therapy or radiopharmaceutical. It's uh, really, I think, an exciting breakthrough for the field as a new radiopharmaceutical that gives us another option um, for our patients with metastatic CRPC after progression on an AR-targeted agent and docetaxel chemotherapy, so not yet approved in an earlier setting. Um, what we can see in this slide is that lutetium PSMA 617 is actually binding to PSMA protein that's expressed on prostate cancer cells, also importantly expressed in salivary gland um, glands as well. So when we're looking at PSMA PET imaging, um, and we're going through those with patients, always warning them that they're going to see a lot of uptake in their face, I think is an important piece of those conversations. In any event, this is going to be a drug, of course, that binds to PSMA and then gives off this lutetium particle, which is a beta-emitting radiopharmaceutical, and it's going to fire these uh, pretty high-energy beta uh, emissions to the prostate cancer cells and, and hopefully kill them. This was assessed in the VISION trial. This included patients with metastatic CRPC. It was an international phase three trial. All patients had to have had prior treatment with the novel hormonal therapy, as well as one or two lines of taxane therapy. They had to have a reasonable performance status, and they all had to have a PSMA PET scan that demonstrated expression of, of PSMA on their prostate cancer cells. And PSMA PETs are still a part of patient selection for use of this agent. For patients who have a significant burden of disease that is not PSMA PET AVID, they won't be eligible for treatment. Patients were randomized in the phase three vision trial to receive best standard of care plus lutetium PSMA 617 or best standard of care. And best standard of care was to be determined by the investigator. For many patients, this was the alternate AR targeted agent. For patients who had already progressed on one of those agents, as was required in the eligibility requirements. But for some patients, this was a steroid or a pain medication. And this varied. I, I was fortunate to put some patients onto this trial, and it really depended on what they'd already been exposed to and what their current status was. But essentially, uh, best standard of care with lutetium versus best standard of care alone with the primary endpoint of radiographic progression-free survival and overall survival. So here we can see the, the curves overall survival on the left and radiographic progression-free survival on the right 
with lutetium PSMA 617 plus best standard of care clearly being superior to best standard of care uh, alone, as we can see on these curves. The hazard ratio here is 0.62 for survival. This is highly statistically significant and was an approximately four-month improvement in overall survival. One thing that I think is interesting in this space is that all of our approved agents in metastatic, castration-resistant prostate cancer have approximately a four-month improvement in overall survival as compared to the control arm, which is really consistent, but also really frustrating, uh, but does not mean that, I, I, that this agent doesn't give us enough. It's just always what we see in these late-line, heavily pretreated patient populations, from my perspective at least. Um, and we can see the RPFS clearly showing a more substantial benefit there. Uh, importantly, both of these primary endpoints were met in the vision trial. Um, there were some higher incidents of treatment-related adverse events in the lutetium arm, but these were as expected. Things like cytopenias, GI effects, fatigue, um, and this was approved in March of 2022. Additionally, as we saw in the patient case that we discussed, we really have to ensure that our patients are getting both germline and somatic genetic testing when they hit the MCRPC patient population. Germline genetic testing is recommended for all metastatic patients, so certainly they should have it by MCRPC, and if they haven't, we need to do it. And somatic testing can be done uh, in the MHSPC setting, as Dr. McKay mentioned, but is also very, very appropriate in the MCRPC setting. Importantly, we have therapeutic options that are identified for, that eligibility is identified by this testing, including two PARP inhibitors and we also have pembrolizumab for MSI high patients. So we need to do the testing in order to identify which patients may benefit. Germline genetic testing, of course, also has implications for families with many families that have things like BRCA2, BRCA1 being identified by this testing and then having implications for their children. Uh, and in our center, at least, there have been several uh, patients whose daughters have had early detection of breast cancers because of these BRCA2 mutations that have been identified, which is really gratifying and important um, for those patients and their families. As I said, germline and genetic test, uh, somatic genetic testing are absolutely recommended. And this is really a characterization of when we want to do this testing. So germline testing on the left, any patient with metastatic disease. But you know, it's really important just in our localized disease setting as well. For patients who have high risk and very high risk localized prostate cancer, germline genetic testing is still recommended there as well. Ashkenazi Jewish ancestry is important as well for, for any of our patients. And you can see a family history here of having a germline genetic uh, mutation being uh, important as well. Somatic testing, as I said, can be done at a later time point if needed. Earlier time points allow us to do some planning, which can be really helpful. And I mentioned the MSI high status being important for identification of patients who may be eligible for pembrolizumab, but we also have to recognize that patients can have other alterations, including TMB uh, greater than 10, which could um, identify them as being eligible for pembrolizumab, or PMS2, MSH2, MSH6, and MLH as well. So if you have any of those genetic alterations, in addition to MSI high status, you might have a patient who is eligible for pembrolizumab. Uh, the take-home message here is that we find about half of the targetable alterations in germline testing, and we find about half in somatic testing. So in order to have a full picture of what may be beneficial to our patients, we need to do both. 
I mentioned there are two PARP inhibitors that are approved in metastatic CRPC. Alaparib is approved for any patient who has metastatic castration-resistant prostate cancer who has one of a number of alterations listed at the bottom of the screen, including BRCA1, BRCA2, as well as PALB2, CHECK2, and others. Uh, and these patients just have to have had progression on an ADT and an AR-targeted agent. They can receive Alaparib before or after chemotherapy exposure. Rucaparib is approved based on the Triton study, and we'll look at that in a moment. This is only approved for patients with MCRPC who have had progression of disease on an AR-targeted agent as well as docetaxel. So you do need to have taxane exposure, and it's only approved for patients who have a BRCA1 or BRCA2 alteration. The PROFOUND trial is the phase three trial that led to the approval of a lap rib in MCRPC. And this included patients who had metastatic castration-resistant disease that had progressed on an AR-targeted agent. They could have had exposure to docetaxel, but they did not need to. They also could have had exposure to gabazitaxel as well. And all patients were selected as having an, uh, one of the HRR alterations that we saw on the last slide. Patients were randomized to treatment with a laparib as a single agent plus their ADT versus the alternate AR targeted agent. So abiraterone if they had been exposed to enzalutamide, enzalutamide if they had been exposed to abiraterone. And they were followed on the left for radiographic progression-free survival. And on the right, you can see the overall survival curve. There were two cohorts in this particular trial, just to be aware of. The first cohort included BRCA1, BRCA2, and ATM alterations, and the second cohort included all of those other exploratory alterations that are included in the list. The primary endpoint was really around cohort A here, and that's the data that is presented. Also importantly, Alaparib was associated with a reduced pain burden as compared to that alternate AR targeted agent, and was associated with the maintenance of health-related quality of life. I think certainly this suggests that benefit of a laparib, but emphasizes to me as a clinician that the alternate AR targeted agent is not going to be an effective strategy. Triton 2 is the study that led to the approval of rucaparib, and this is a single-arm phase 2 trial that included patients who had a number of alterations, but only the data for BRCA1 and BRCA2 alteration patients is, is uh, available here. What we can see on the left is the resist response for those patients in terms of the shrinkage of tumor, and on the right, the radiographic progression-free survival, um, demonstrating a nice survival and a nice response in these BRCA1 and BRCA2 patients. All patients in Triton 2 had had exposure to an AR-targeted agent as well as docetaxel chemotherapy, and uh, that's why the approval is the way that it is after AR-targeted agent and docetaxel chemotherapy. And there is a confirmatory Triton 3 trial that did meet its primary endpoint of radiographic progression-free survival in the intention-to-treat uh, and BRCA uh, patient groups, and we're going to be able to see that data hopefully in the very near future. There are ongoing trials of PARP inhibitors in metastatic castration-resistant prostate cancer, including the, the uh, Galahad series and the Talapro series, but these are some of the reported data for the phase two Galahad study. We can see here that we have an improvement to the treatment of patients with uh, BRCA mutations uh, and the non-BRCA mutations here, also that, that comparative uh, comparison with the treatment with niraparib, and we can see that clear benefit to those BRCA patients with a treatment of niraparib, again, a metastatic CRPC patient population. The Talapro study here on the right was treatment with talazoparib, and this included patients, again, benefiting predominantly those BRCA1 and BRCA2 alterations, and the non-BRCA patients uh, not benefiting there significantly. 
at least in comparison. So the PARP inhibitors as a class have a number of safety considerations that we do need to think about. Certainly these are oral agents, which I think can lull us into thinking that they're relatively similar to the AR-targeted agents in terms of their side effect profile, but that's not really the case. We absolutely need to think about these as being agents that can cause cytopenias, anemia, GI distress, loss of appetite. Um, so these are things that definitely need to be proactively managed, and patients can absolutely tolerate these agents, but we need to stay on top of assessing their CBCs on a regular basis, counseling them on how to take these agents effectively uh, and, and successfully, and being aware of these potential rare but serious side effects, including uh, marrow uh, issues like MDS or potential AML, though these are are not commonly seen or really seen at all in our prostate cancer populations. They are theoretical and have been seen in other patient populations. Additionally, um, PE and thromboembolism have come up in more recent studies, uh, although they, they seem to be not necessarily, certainly not symptomatic and not necessarily related to drug. So when we go back to our patient case here, 63-year-old with metastatic CRPC, we could see that this patient, again, has a great performance status, has progression of his hormone-sensitive low-volume metastatic prostate cancer um, on abiraterone, and now has MCRPC with a BRCA2 alteration. And I wonder, Dr. McKay, what would you do for this patient? Yeah, I mean, I think um, he, he definitely has a lot of options to consider. Um, definitely chemotherapy is one of the options to consider for this individual, but this is a perfect candidate for allopurid therapy where the approval comes without a need for prior chemo. He's kind of, um, you know, what I like to call kind of slow progression into the metastatic CRPC setting. His PSA is slowly rising. His scan shows some um, worsening, uh, you know, a little bit of worsening bone pain, bone disease, a little bit of worsening lymph nodes. So, you know, this I think is a prime candidate for a laparib therapy, um, and patients can do really well for a long period of time with continuous monitoring for of their blood counts, anemias, things like that. Absolutely. So, not another AR targeted agent, Dr. McKay. No, definitely not another AR targeting agent. You know, I think um, the data for sequential use, I think from now. Looking at the control arm of multiple phase three trials from the profound study, from the CARD trial, I think sequential, um, you know, AR targeting agents really are not um, the key. And, and I think the other really important thing for this gentleman is he actually had a fairly short time in the metastatic hormone sensitive setting. So I'm really not keen on giving him an AR targeting agent. Great. Well, thank you for that. So definitely thinking through all of our options, especially these slow, slowly progressing patients. Sometimes I do think about Cipulus-CELT um, when that's available. Not all institutions, I think, have access to that. Radium's not going to be an option because this patient does have pelvic lymph node progression. Um, so there are, there are pros and there are cons. I think chemotherapy, of course, is also an option. Um, but Olaparib is the, um, the, the clear, obvious answer here that we wanted to, to think about. And make sure that we keep that in the back of our minds as we're thinking again about all of the options for our patients. So as we move on to the next novel approaches and, and uh, the clinical trial approaches that we have uh, for the future, I think it's important for us to, to think about these PARP inhibitors not only as single agents, as we saw in the profound trial, in the TRIAN trial, but also in combinations and in use uh, in earlier disease states. So maybe in the localized setting, maybe in the, the earlier hormone-sensitive setting, we have not seen data in those states, and these may be opportunities for us, particularly um, in select patients, uh, to have, uh, have good effect. 
There are also opportunities to think about cell cycle pathway disruption. This is a hallmark of cancer and its progression, and we'll go through some data with CDK4-6 inhibitors that show promise, or at least some um, trial design, at least, for these, that show promise in a broad group of cancers. And then, of course, immunotherapy and TKIs and whether we can potentially make cold tumors hot by using combinations uh, and try to harness the immunotherapy effects uh, is something that remains of interest in MCRPC. So just a few months ago, actually, we saw some really interesting data presented at GUASCO. Um, two studies that are phase three landmark studies that um, help define co- the, the role of potential combinations of uh, novel hormonal agents and PARP inhibitors in the MCRPC setting. The PROPEL trial is the one that is uh, illustrated here. This is essentially a first-line metastatic CRPC trial for patients who have progressed on ADT. They could have had exposure to docetaxel in the metastatic hormone-sensitive setting, uh, but all patients that were enrolled were randomized to treatment with abiraterone with or without olaparib. Importantly, this was a, an unselected patient population, so they could have had HRR mutations, but they didn't have to have them. Um, and they were really enrolled uh, in this study with a primary endpoint here of uh, radiographic progression-free survival and, and just assessed as an all-comers population. What we can see on the left is that the combination of abiraterone and olaparib was associated with a prolonged radiographic progression-free survival as compared to abiraterone alone in this particular trial. Again, interesting because it's an all-comers population, and also because abiraterone in the first-line MCRPC setting is actually quite an active control arm, which I think is important as we're trying to design rational trials for our patients that are both rational but also make sense for them in terms of therapy. On the right, we can see that the responses uh, are listed here with the response rates around 58% um, for the elaborate and abiraterone, um, as well as the uh, response rate being here around 48% for those patients who had placebo and abiraterone. Uh, And so really this, I think, defines an opportunity for us to think about this perhaps in an unselected population. But what we don't have at this point is overall survival data, and we don't necessarily know without that what these agents would provide in sequence uh, if they were given one after the other, at least in the biomarker-selected population in this particular trial. We wouldn't expect that a laparib is going to have a good effect on patients who do not have um, HRR alterations as a single agent. The magnitude trial was presented simultaneously. Again, really exciting data and an opportunity for us as a field to think about this first-line metastatic CRPC setting. These patients were actually biomarker uh, selected from the, from the get-go, so they were all tested, and they were confirmed as either having HRR alterations or not, and were enrolled in a specific cohort based on having that alteration or not having it. And all patients uh, had, had the first-line MCRPC setting. They could have had exposure to uh, ADT and docetaxel in the metastatic hormone-sensitive setting, but had progression at least on ADT alone, and were randomized within their cohorts to treatment with abiraterone, with or without niraparib. Importantly, the biomarker negative population in this particular trial did not seem to benefit from the addition of niraparib to abiraterone in that first-line MCRPC setting. So the biomarker negative population seemed to have similar radiographic progression-free survival whether or not niraparib was added. 
But importantly, in the biomarker positive population, there was a clear benefit in terms of radiographic progression-free survival to the addition of niraparib to, uh, plus abiraterone versus abiraterone alone. So we can see that in the curve on the left. And when we, then we can also see the responses here in patients who have the all biomarker-selected patients on the left side of those bar graphs versus the BRCA1 and 2 mutated um, patients on the right side. So really, I think a distinction versus the last trial, but another study that suggests that the combination of abiraterone and uh, a PARP inhibitor, in this case, niraparib, may be beneficial. Again, we don't have survival data, and we don't know what would happen in sequence, but I think very, very thought-provoking and really, really important. And these patients, again, uh, importantly selected from the get-go as having biomarker or not. At SUO this year, really exciting, we will have some data on the real-world prevalence of select HR alterations in patients with metastatic CRPC. Dan George has an abstract that's going to be available on Thursday, so check that out. I think it suggests that maybe about 20% of patients with metastatic CRPC are going to have these alterations, which is really a large population important for us in our practices. And there's also the phase three amplitude abiraterone uh, and prednisone plus or minus niraparib in patients with metastatic hormone-sensitive disease trial in progress presentation. This is going to be presented um, by Julie Graff and also a poster by uh, Dana Rathkop. So very, very exciting. That is a select population in the amplitude phase three. And I will pass over to Dr. McKay. Wonderful. So we're going to end by talking about novel therapy combinations in the advanced and uh, metastatic hormone sensitive settings. So I want to spend a little bit of time talking about CDK4-6. CDK4-6 regulates G1S cell cycle progression. Um, CDK4-6 inhibitors basically inhibit the phosphorylation of RB and induce cell cycle arrest. Um, They've been approved for treatment um, in other tumors, specifically in breast cancer. There's three oral CDK4-6 inhibitors that are approved um, for the treatment of advanced and also in the adjuvant setting uh, for patients with uh, breast cancer. So the rationale for CDK4-6 inhibition in prostate cancer is analogous to the rationale in uh, breast cancer where the estrogen receptor um, really, there's a lot of kind of crosstalk between these two pathways. We see the same thing with the androgen receptor, which activates CDK4-6 um, in men who have prostate cancer, causing uh, cancer cell proliferation, and that actually upregulates cyclin D1 as a potential mechanism of resistance to um, next-generation hormonal therapy. Um, so there's rationale for inhibition of CDK4-6, which may be an effective strategy to overcome uh, primary resistance to androgen uh, uh, therapy. And so preclinical models have actually demonstrated that abemocyclib, which is a CDK4-6 inhibitor, actually induces cell cycle arrest and inhibits prostate cancer growth um, uh, in vivo. So I want to highlight here the phase three cyclone three trial. This study is looking at the combination of abiraterone, prednisone, and abemocyclib in patients with high-risk metastatic hormone-sensitive prostate cancer. Um, abemocyclib is a selective and potent ATP competitive inhibitor of CDK4-6. It's administered orally on a continuous schedule. This trial is enrolling patients who have high-risk disease based off of the presence of bone or visceral metastases on conventional imaging and randomizing them one-to-one to to triple therapy with abiraterone, prednisone, 
prednisone and abemaciclib versus abiraterone, prednisone, and placebo. The primary endpoint here is radiographic progression-free survival. Uh, key secondary endpoints will include overall survival and RPFS by independent review. So this trial is currently open and accruing. Additionally, I want to highlight the CDK46 program in the metastatic CRPC setting. The Cyclone 2, or the, uh, the Cyclone uh, uh, 2 study was a phase 2-3 trial that actually looked at abiraterone, prednisone, with or without abemaciclib in the first-line metastatic CRPC setting. Um, this was a multi-part trial. Part 1 was really looking at the optimal dosing um, through a lead-in with 30 patients. Part 2 was really a randomized phase 2 looking at um, uh, 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 abemaciclib uh, plus abiraterone compared to abiraterone plus placebo. And there was a go, no-go decision um, for part two to move into part three, um, which has actually completed accrual and we're awaiting the results of the primary analysis um, for RPFS. The Cyclone 1 uh, study was a phase two study of abemaciclib in, um, as monotherapy in the refractory MRCP setting. And so we're eagerly awaiting the results of uh, this uh, uh, agent um, for patients with advanced disease. I do want to highlight the results of the COSMIC 021 trial. We saw some very um, intriguing data, and these are now uh, published of the co of a TKI and IO, basically cabozantinib plus atezolizumab, in a large phase 1b study that was looking at the activity of these agents in patients with metastatic CRPC in patients who had progressed on prior um, ABI or ENZA um, and uh, uh, had a uh, 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 prior chemotherapy as well. In the metastatic CRPC cohort, the objective response rate here was at 23%, and um, you can see the waterfall plot there with 77% of patients kind of having regression of their tumor. And we have the large uh, contact two study, which is currently ongoing, which is a large phase three, which is looking at definitively answering the question of what is the role of cabozantinib and atezolizumab in the metastatic uh, castration resistance setting. Um, this trial is enrolling patients that have visceral metastases that have only progressed on one prior NHT given either in the hormone sensitive or um, advanced setting versus physician joys, either abiraterone or enzalutamide. The dosing of the cabozantinib here is at 40 milligrams um, with standard dosing of atezolizumab. The primary endpoint is PFS and OS. There are a couple of questions. I think we have maybe a little bit of time to do a couple of questions um, that have come through. So I'll go through some of these. Um, one of the questions was, what do you do with bone agents in the uh, uh, upfront setting with triple therapy? So uh, uh, don't mind highlighting the role of uh, uh, osteoclast-targeted therapy for metastatic hormone-sensitive disease. So based off of a large CALGB trial that actually investigated the role of Zomeda in this setting, um, we generally do not, that trial was essentially negative. It did not demonstrate that actually use of a bisphosphonate um, improved uh, symptomatic skeletal-related event rate in the metastatic hormone-sensitive setting. I think effective hormonal therapy um, that better controls the disease actually mitigates um, SREs in this context. So that study was negative. I think use of an OTT for um, just treatment-related osteoporosis or osteopenia is certainly, um, you know, indicated in the metastatic hormone-sensitive setting. But if you're using uh, bisphosphonate or Exgeva for SSE reduction in the metastatic hormone-sensitive setting, we, we actually generally don't do that and recommend against that. 
I don't know, Alicia, if you have other thoughts around. Sure. I, I would just say, health. so we absolutely want you to treat osteoporosis and prevent fragility fractures in the metastatic hormone sensitive setting. So that's not to say don't use bisphosphonates, but that study really gave frequent Zomata over time, like we do in the metastatic CRPC setting. And so we do not want to do that. But if you have a patient who has osteoporosis on a DEXA, and we do recommend for any patient on ADT, long-term ADT in particular, getting DEXA scans, assessing patient's bone mineral density, if they have a high likelihood of fracture, which you can determine with a DEXA scan, you can also use a FRAX calculator to try to figure that out. Yes, we absolutely would use, um, use these bone health agents. But again, as, as Dr. McKay said, this is for fragility fracture prevention. So basically stopping them from having an osteoporotic type of a fracture, not for skeletal relate, uh, related event prevention, which is what we do in MCRPC. But I just want to emphasize that because bone health is a, is a love of mine since I was a fellow. And so thank you for giving me the chance. Oh, no problem. <laughs> And uh, some other questions here um, for patients with HRR mutations, are PARP inhibitors used in earlier stages of the disease? They're certainly being investigated in earlier stages of the disease. You saw uh, the schema for the um, amplitude trial, which is going to test the role of uh, niraparib in the metastatic hormone-sensitive setting. Talatrol 3 is looking at the role of enzalutamide and talazoparib in metastatic hormone-sensitive there are other studies. Um, I will highlight the Neptune trial, which is looking at um, uh, olaparib in the neoadjuvant setting, actually prior to radical prostatectomy in patients with, metasta- or patients with uh, somatic or uh, germline BRCA1-2 alterations. I don't know if you have any data in the biochemical recurrent setting. I think there may be I'm not some, sure, yeah. but there definitely, there's an NRG study that's yeah. looking at it in, in combination with radiation, that's which right. I think is really interesting too. So these are select populations for the most part, uh, usually being selected by HRR mutations, but we have a lot to learn yeah. in, this, in this space. So um, maybe what we can shift gears now is really talking about um, really the importance of clinical trials. I think this is really how we move the field forward, really engaging in clinical trial, engaging in discussions with your patients about, um, you know, the the potential benefits of clinical trial potentially to them and also to the field in general. I think, you know, all of the data that we just shared with you today is really the product of um, hundreds of patients giving up their time, energy, effort to enroll on trials and help move the field forward. Um, There's a lot of opportunities for patient engagement through patient advocacy groups, through social media, and additionally, actually not just with patients as well, but within your local community through tumor boards and and other referral networks that you may have, just thinking about engagement um, in in, uh, clinical trials. This is really kind of how we can move the field forward. All right, we've got more more, uh, Q&A questions here. So anybody in the audience here, feel free to submit your Q&A questions um, electronically. I know there's a question here about how do patients handle the three therapies? Do they feel overwhelmed? Um, You know, I think uh, it's all about education, all about communication and talking about expectations for patients because I think with good communication, engaging with your nursing colleagues, APPs, nutritionists, you know, um, maybe palliative care, even early for pain control, and actually setting appropriate expectations for the patients, I think you can really get them smoothly through their you know, just basically four months of docetaxel, and then they're kind of coasting when they're on their um, hormonal therapy thereafter. So it's it's really good, you know, patient engagement. I think docetaxel patients actually tend to do really well with with uh, docetaxel. Uh, um, you know, we don't run into too many issues with it, and uh, we have a lot of experience in being able to treat the side effects. 
What, yeah. What's your experience for helping I, patients through that journey? I, I would agree. I think, you know, patients come in expecting chemotherapy like they, they might see on a movie or in family members for breast cancer or lymphoma or leukemia. And those are combinations of multiple drugs, sometimes given inpatient because they are so toxic. And this is, that's not what docetaxel yeah. is. You, you know yeah. that well. This is a single agent that in many patients barely causes marrow suppression and barely causes nausea. So yeah. I, don't, I don't mean to say that it does not cause these effects. And some patients are more affected than other patients. But in general, we can get these patients through. And I always think, too, you know, I feel like I'm better able to get them through when they're younger, when they, they have that sort of motivation with a new diagnosis, then, and with six cycles, rather than when they're a few years older, now they're, they may have other comorbidities, um, and just may be in a different place in terms of their fitness for chemotherapy in the MCRPC setting. And I think when we look at the trial data and look at the median number of cycles received, the majority of people that were enrolled onto the um, you know, trials in the metastatic hormone-sensitive setting of docetaxel received all six cycles. That means that they were well enough and didn't have complications to not have to con- you know, discontinue therapy. So we can get patients through this uh, therapy. It's highly effective. Yes. All right. Well, uh, what- there was one, one other oh, yeah. question down here, Raina. I don't know if you want to comment just briefly. Should ADT be continued indefinitely for metastatic patients? So very good question. And I think based off of current standard, yes. But I think the field is evolving based off of, you know, how are we defining metastatic disease? Are we defining it by conventional imaging? Are we defining it by PSMA PET? Are patients undergoing metastasis-directed therapy? Do they have low-volume disease? Their primary has been treated, and they've got two mets that you've radiated. You've given them, you know, two years of therapy. I think we don't know the answer to the question of what is, um, you know, what does therapy discontinuation look like? But I think these are important questions that next generation clinical trials really need to be keen at answering. Um, And thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank Thank you, you. Alicia. Thank you. This activity is certified by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash YGE860. This activity is supported by medical educational grants from Astellas and Pfizer Incorporated, Exelixis Incorporated, Janssen Biotech Incorporated, administered by Janssen Scientific Affairs, LLC, and Lilly.